the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 450 for Monday, May 20th, 2013. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show. You send in your questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer your questions. We share your tips. We share tips of our own. We bring in some things that we find and like and would love to share with you. And all together, we learn a little something new about the Mac, iOS, Apple technology each and every time we get together. Here, back in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And life in general, I would say. Um, perhaps, but I'm back, Dave, you're, you're back from, uh, well, well, first, who am I? John F. Braun here in Fairfield, Connecticut. But, uh, Dave, as you said, you're back. I, I believe you were in the Reedy Creek improvement district. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise known as Disney world. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So, you know, we've talked about the Reedy Creek Improvement District before. I'm going to give a, a brief story because it's interesting. Um, I think it's interesting anyway. Why I, I, I why I, why we always call it the Reedy Creek Improvement District, because the Disney brothers um, really kind of pulled one over on the state of Florida almost unintentionally. I think there were good intentions and not unintentionally. There were good intentions at the outset. Walt sold the state of Florida on this concept of uh, an experimental prototype community of tomorrow, right? Where people would live and it would be this whole like self-sustaining thing. And he, and he had this whole vision and, and, you know, he was crazy visionary, very passionate. And he's convinced the state of Florida that, yeah, we, we should let him do this. And so they basically, he had, they had sort of secretly bought up all this land in the, in the middle of, of the state. Um, and then they went to the state of Florida and said, this is what we want to do with it. But we kind of need some freedom to do this. And so they gave them their own county. Okay. Now, this is a normal county like anything else. And the people that live there get to vote on county matters and everything. But fast forwarding, as it turns out, all the people that live there have golden handcuffs from the Walt Disney World Corporation uh, on. And so they tend to vote in, in their own best interests, as most voters do. And in this case, their best interests are perfectly aligned with that of the Walt Disney Company. But uh but Walt really was going to build this thing. And that was part of the deal was, you know, we'll give you this, but you have to agree to build it in X number of years. And so uh, then Walt died. And Roy took a look at the books and took a look at the uh, the agreement with the state and said, huh, yeah, Walt's thing was cool, but uh, really uh, that's not going to make us any money. So we're going to build a theme park called the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, i.e. Epcot. And that will fulfill our obligation to the state. And we still get to run our own county, basically ad infinitum. And that's what they've done. And that county that was gifted to the or not gifted, but but allowed to be uh, essentially owned by the or not owned. But the county is the Reedy Creek Improvement District. That's what it was all called hmm. when they when they banded it together. Yeah, it's an interesting little story. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and and a small, very small tangent. Then we'll get to the show day. Yeah, as, as if that I wasn't to. enough of a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, did you go to celebration celebration? Ah, okay. Well, 
Okay, so when I was down there, that there was another oddity, or a, a real estate, or governmental, or whatever oddity, Dave. There is a little town called Celebration, Florida, which okay. is within reach of Disney World. And I'll just read the first line from Wikipedia, and then people can read up on it later. But Celebration is a census-designated place and a master-planned community in Osceola County, Florida, United States, located near Walt Disney World. Uh, Apparently, it's a, uh, a little, and, and if you read the thing here, you'll see it's it's a it's a community that's been influenced by the presence of uh, Disney. And I've been there, and they have, uh, and and it's very, I don't know, it, it, it kind of creeped me out a bit. <laughs> it's almost like Stepford Wives. And I wonder if this like, is this, this place is too perfect. <laughs> well, maybe that's the idea. Maybe this is part of that whole Reedy Creek Improvement District. I, I think it was because if yeah. you look at it, uh, I mean, it's a very nice community, um, has all those services, you know, restaurants and stores and stuff. Sure. And when you stroll about there, you you feel, you know, kind of nostalgic because, you know, it's a lot of huh. old stuff there. But, uh, oh, I'm surprised you didn't go there. Well, no. next time you're down there, you got to go to Celebration. It's, you know, right off of the highway. It's within reach. And, sure. uh, and it's it's pretty, pretty cool place. Huh. Cool. All right. So uh, let me get let me take a uh, let me bring us back to the, the show here. So <laughs> the what? Uh, y- you know, when I when I'm home, I don't put a password on my iPhone. I, I it, the convenient, you know, security is one of those things, as we always say, where you're balancing convenience with with security or with safety. Right. And at home, the convenience, uh, the, the, the safety risks are are minimal with someone commandeering my iPhone and uh and so I, I, I go without a password. But when I travel, I do put a password on. Um, but, it you know, it's uh, conveniently not all that convenient because every time I wake up my phone or, you know, you can set it so that it only kicks in after five minutes of not having used your phone or whatever. But still, there's that, you know, momentary lag where you've got to do something. Now, uh, there are two types of passwords that you can set on your phone. And, and you're doing this. And this is true of your iPad, too. But the tip I'm going to give is is really helpful for the phone. Uh, so you go into settings, general, and then passcode lock. And uh, and if it's and you can enable it there. But there's an option that says simple passcode. OK, and normally that's on. And what that means is uh, you will use a passcode that is a four digit number. Now, that's more easily hackable than something that has numbers and letters, which is why they call it a simple passcode. Uh but you can uh, and now anybody that hears this probably could pick up my iPhone at, uh, at Macworld Expo or wherever I happen to be and, and get into it. But, you know, whatever. It's a good tip. So I'm, I'm willing to share. Uh, if you turn off simple passcode, then you have to type in a password of, uh, you know, with with uh, you get the option of typing a password with letters and numbers and you can do whatever you want. But here's the trick. Uh, if you do that, you can do a one letter password okay and so it's very easy because now you only have to type two keys you hit your one letter password and the okay button and boom you're in your phone so uh so i won't make it quite so simple for you to break into my phone i won't tell you what my one letter password is that i typically choose but uh but smart people could probably figure it out because again i'm going for full convenience so i will leave you with that but that's uh that's my tip is that the not so simple password is actually quite a bit simpler than uh, than the four digit password. If you want it to be pretty interesting, huh, John? Fascinating, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> so there you and go. I'm going to see 
and I'm probably going to see Star Trek into darkness soon. Cool. Yeah, there was a, well, it was geek fest at, at Disney's Hollywood studios because it's star Wars weekend this weekend. So it was, all, no, all I think I saw at least one picture from, uh, from Lisa with, uh, yeah, yeah Darth and some stormtroopers just right. kind of, <laughs> yeah. Waltzing through. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. It's good stuff. All right, John, what's, uh, that was a little weird. I had a little hiccup there audibly. Uh, are you still I did with too. me? Okay. Well, but Douglas, Douglas, yeah, take us to the agenda, please. So let's actually do the show here. Douglas writes, hi, guys. I just purchased a D-Link 24-port rack-mountable gigabit switch DGS-1024D. I think the 1024 is for gigabit. I'm not sure how to plug into... I'm not, I'm not sure how to plug into the internet. Should I come from my Time Warner cable modem into the D-Link and from the D-Link into the airport? Question mark. Or should I come from the Time Warner Camel modem into the airport and then the airport into the D-Link? I think I need to go into the airport first because the airport assigns the IP addresses that. Is that correct? Thanks, Douglas. And Douglas, you are absolutely correct. Your second proposal is the correct one. Yeah, well, um, let's, let's explain why, John. And the reason being, yeah. yes. So the reason being, so let's talk about the different components in, in your network and what they do. And so what I would say, Dave, that the cable modem does and the switch does is something that the air, uh, what they do is something, hmm, the airport does something that the other devices do not. And, and that's the important part here. So the important part here is you got to realize what devices on the network are acting as a router. And I'm going to oversimplify this, but I think I'm, I'm going to be safe here is that a router is something that, yes, it manages traffic, but the important part is that it manages the assigning of IP addresses. Okay. I'll give you that. Yeah, or, or, you're okay. right. You are oversimplifying, but 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 in, on our in home networks, that is almost universally true. And if it's not true, you already know that it's not true because you've set your net network up in a very, very non-standard fashion. Right. right. So the important part here is to realize which devices are assigning and managing IP addresses. And then to dig in a little deeper, the, there's a public and a private side. So that's getting a bit deeper than I think we want to go with this question. But the basic part is here. What device is assigning IP addresses and what should I plug into what? And to me, the answer here is that so while the cable modem, so first off, the cable modem is not, in this case, as far as I can tell, a router. It is essentially a switch, but it is talking to your internet service provider's router, and it's providing an IP address to another device on your network, which I would also consider a router, being the airport. Let me see if I can explain this a little more straightforward. Okay, because I think I technically got it right, but but go ahead. Give give us a different lens. Yeah, right. Different lens. Yeah. Internet connection comes in. The thing that focuses it into your house is the cable modem or the DSL modem. Without that, the internet connection that lives on the outside of your house can't get into your house. So you need that cable modem to bring it in. Now it's in, but it can only be assigned to one computer. That's where your router comes in. Your router takes that internet connection for one computer and shares it amongst all of your computers. And that is what your router does. It, it, crea- it, it, it is that fan that allows your internet connection to be used by multiple computers. However, your router 
may not have enough ports for all of your computers to plug into. And that's what an additional switch allows you to do is you hang that off of the router to allow more computers. But the switch can't be the first thing because you need that router to fan the connection out. Right. So the cable modem, I think what I said, but uh, but again, you I, I think you you helped uh, clarify it. Your cable modem is providing a link between your router being the airport and the router of your internet service provider. Yeah, which then talks to routers, uh, all other routers of your ISP and other routers on the internet. I mean, it everything's a router, uh, you know, that you might hop through right. seventeen routers before you get to yes. MacGeekGab.com. So to get down to it, the correct procedure is yes, plug your cable modem into your airport, which is a router, and then plug your switch into your airport, and that will expand greatly the number of ports available to you. Um, Though, of course, most airport, uh, at least extremes these days, have, I believe, at least four local ports here. But this, of course, will expand it to 24 ports. And, dude, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. 24-port gigabit. That's what you want. One thing I will add before we move on to Troy's tip here, John, is that yes. it is possible that your cable modem, or, or especially your DSL modem, also acts as a router. And in that case, you could plug the switch right into it. You just need to know, like John said earlier, you need to know where the router is in your setup. Do they? Okay. Oh, definitely. I, I, many, many, yeah. Okay. A lot of them have Wi-Fi access points in them and, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. In fact, no, I, that, that may be more common now than not. I don't know. I, you know, it depends on your, okay. your setup and or your Okay. All I know is opt online typically provides a simple cable modem in one end is a cable connection and the other end is a single ethernet port. But no, I know what you're saying. Some, some ISPs will offer, not only a router, but yeah, a, a Wi-Fi access point as well. Yep. Yep. All right. Troy had a tip for us, John. <sighs> Me again? Oh, man. It is you. But, you know, now that I got that tip on how to bring everything into a single window <laughs> in preview, which uh, for people who are wondering what the heck I'm talking about, if you go into preview and you say preferences in the general tab. So I had this gripe before because I didn't know why that was happening, but... There is a selection when opening files, and uh, apparently, maybe it's the default behavior, is open groups of files in the same, or, or no, uh, open groups of files in the same window. I have no idea what constitutes a group. But anyways, open all files in one window is how I have it set up. So, Troy, what does Troy tell us here? And let me go back here. So, Troy had a query in the past here. Um... And he was asking about taking issues from mail and then bringing them into reminders. And Essentially making to-do tasks from mail messages. Right. And I think the, the, the definition of that has changed and that it, at one point it was part of calendars and now Apple has now moved to a reminders app. Um, but anyway, so in the past, the, uh, so in a prior question, he asked me about this and I said, well, hi, Troy. In mail, a rule can be used to run an Apple script. This short article will talk about how to create reminders with an Apple script. So there's that. And I provide a link to that. We'll do it again. Yep. And although this is for iCal reminders from iMail, it sounds like they're close enough that you can replace the occurrences of iCal with reminders and provided him with an automator script. But then he got back to us and this was very cool. And he said, or <laughs> I just actually answered my own question. You can click on the header of the email, not the email itself. 
drag the header to reminders, and it will create a reminder with a hyperlink back to the email message. As long as the email message exists in mail, regardless of its folder location, the hyperlink opens the message. And then, oh, I don't have the screenshots here. Bummer. No, it's cool. Original message after drag and drop. But apparently, Reminders is smart enough where if you drag an email into it, it will create something, which you could, of course, modify, and then give you a reminder of a task that I guess was initially sent to you via email. Yeah, it's cool. Mail messages have URLs, essentially, uh, not essentially, actually, uh, and you can link to them. And, and this is one example of how that works. So not only does it create the reminder, but it actually has a link back to the mail message. So you could see all the detail and even the history of the of the mail messages. So very cool way to do things. I was I was pretty stoked about that one. I like that. I got to admit, I don't use reminders. I probably should just to, so we can help our fellow Mac users here. But I don't use reminders at all. I, I do. Um, I, I still, I, you know, Apple's um, Apple's apps uh, for calendars. I use BusyCal, And so all my reminders would show up in my reminders app, but I like them in the calendar and I like the way BusyCal does it. So I actually have all my to do's show up in BusyCal uh, right alongside my calendar and I can move them from date to date and I can filter by date and, and really kind of see things all together for, for the way my brain works. It makes a whole lot more sense to have the reminders there. I get why Apple did it. They wanted, well, it was that back to that whole Scott Forstall. Let's make the Mac like iOS thing. Right. iOS has a separate reminders app. So, okay, we need a separate reminders app on the Mac because people are too stupid to, I'm, that's not my feeling. I, I, I'm, mm. I'm, I think people are smart enough to treat their Macs differently than iOS devices, but forced all felt differently. So, um, so we have now have separate apps, but I like them together. So busy Cal, there you go. Go get busy Cal and, and you'll be much happier. Or even iCal. That's what I do. When I schedule something, it's. Uh, yeah, but iCal doesn't know, I, exist anymore. It's called calendar and it doesn't have to do's in it. Personally, I set up events or, well, I just schedule, <laughs> schedule things and it mm -hmm. alerts me beforehand when they're going to happen. And uh, that still works for me. That model I'm still comfortable with. Right. But that's not a task list. I mean, it, it's a, that's correct. A, that's an event. So mm -hmm. two different things. Yeah. Yeah. No, the busy Cal's great. I highly recommend you check it out, Mr. Braun and everybody. I love it. All right. Um, speaking of calendars shortcomings uh jeff writes recently i got married and i need to enter my anniversary into my calendar into icloud i can easily easily add an anniversary date to the contact for my wife but that does not display in calendar or icloud like birthdays when you need when you add those to a contact Yes, I can just add a regular event into iCal, but it will not increment the anniversary number like it does with birthdays, etc. Most items I find while searching Google have usually been over a year old. Is there any way to do this without third-party software? I'd rather stick to internal OS 10 or iOS features. Um, he says, I did find this one workaround. Basically, you create a fake contact and input the anniversary date in the birthday field. And uh, that's a good one. And he says there's an article at, on Mac life about it. So we'll put that in. But but essentially, it's exactly what you think. You know, you create a fake contact called, uh, you know, wedding anniversary and, and put it in there and then it will auto increment. And that's, you know, a beautiful thing. Uh, but uh, but he asked, you know, is there any other way to do it without resorting to third party software? 
And I really don't think uh, that there is. Um, I, I looked at this and, and I thought about it, but I, I, I no, it's, you know, that's sort of the idea is, is if Apple doesn't provide a path, they don't provide a path. Um, but I did find a cool thing called date that is third party software, admittedly, uh, called dates to iCal. And we will put a link uh, for that in the show notes as well. And dates to iCal uh, does exactly what you're looking for. And it was last updated in March just about two months ago. So that's clearly under active development and it will take uh, other events from your address book or contacts and move them into calendar. Yes. I realize that the name of it is dates to iCal and in and of itself is dated, but this will do it. Um, so there you go. That's uh that's the way to do it. And I think that's probably the simplest way. And sometimes that that's the nice part about third party software is it can do th- cool things like this and it's not doing anything funky. It's, it's just facilitating the process of, of harvesting these dates and putting them into its own calendar. So, uh, so, you know, if the software were to go out of, out of fashion or whatever, it would still, you know, the, the data wouldn't go away. It's not, it's just linking it together in a handy way for you. So dates to iCal. Any thoughts on this, John, before we move on to the next, uh, the next thing here? No. 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 All right. Mm. Well, then the next thing is uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, which is BB Edit from Barebone Software. They are our first sponsor of, uh, of this week's show. And you can check it all out at bbedit.com, of course. But uh, BB Edit is up to version 10.5. Uh, they have been around for a long, long time and gone through a lot of changes uh, over time. They have they have iterated beyond belief on this software. Uh, of course, the latest version has. Uh, well, let's start. Let's let's go back a little bit here and explain what BB Edit is so that you'll appreciate what the latest version have. BB Edit at its core is a text editor. That means you can edit. Any kind of text, you can take a list of things that you want to manipulate. Maybe you want to sort a list or uh, or edit bits and pieces of text or do a advanced or even simple find and replace on some of that text. BB edit can do that. If you're coding uh, a little bit of HTML for a website that you're working on, BB edit can do that, too. And it will as soon as it realizes and it does this. Almost automatic. Well, not almost. It does this automatically. As soon as you kind of get enough of an HTML document there, or if you open one, it starts coloring and laying out things in a format so that you can see it a whole lot easier and you can see what falls between what tags. Really, really simple stuff. And it's not changing the core file with this formatting. It's just translating it that way on the screen for you to make life simpler. So once you've got this up there, you can edit your little HTML, you can edit JavaScript, you can edit Objective-C, you can edit C++, pretty, you can edit Ruby, you can edit Python, pretty much any language that you could come up with, BB Edit knows about it and will auto-format the text for you. Now, the newest version, 10.5, uh, gives you a little bit of, uh, they improve the syntax coloring to, to stand out a little better and, and be a little easier to see just automatically. But they also added Retina support. So if you've got one of those new Retina uh, MacBook Pros, you're able to really get full immersion and full resolution there right inside BB Edit. 
as they've always said, it doesn't suck and it still doesn't suck. BB edit is it. I, it is an app that I have open on every one of my Macs all day long and I wind up using it constantly. And the best part is now it's so much cheaper than it used to be. It's 50 bucks. Actually, it's 49 99. You can buy it in the app store, the Mac app store that is, or you can buy it directly from bare bones. But before you do that, go and download a free trial and, uh, and check it out. And once you're convinced, then you go and buy it. And that's that. Barebones.com. Check out BB Edit. You won't be sorry you did. And with that, John, I think it's time to move on to Phil. And I'm not sorry, Dave. I use BB Edit weekly to generate the lovingly handcrafted show notes because it is a fine HTML editor. There you go. And sometimes I want to get down to it and just edit it manually. That's how it works. <laughs> I'm just old school that way. I yeah. like writing raw HTML and looking at it because it just gets you back to your roots. Well, and maybe okay. it can, I mean, it can generate HTML for you too. It can create elements. Like mm. if you want to create a list, you can pull down from the elements menu and, and, and it builds the list structure for you. And then you just kind of insert your items. So you're sure not to mm. get things wrong. Uh, really, really handy stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, what I like is when I do build it and every now and then even the best of typists have a typo. And the thing is because it color codes, once it realizes what uh, format you're using, if you screw something up and, and don't close a bracket or something, which can happen. Yeah. Then, uh, yeah. It highlights it and, and the coloring is wrong and, and it's like a visual cue. I'm like, oh, wait, I forgot to close that bracket or that uh, that HTML tag. And it's great at that. So totally. But now on to Phil. So what does Phil ask, Dave? Well, Phil says, sadly, in part, John, Dave, and hopefully Pilot Pete, but hopefully Pilot Pete is hopefully somewhere. He's busy flying. Yeah, his yeah. his job function changed a little bit, uh, maybe about a year ago, I guess. And it what it really means is it's the right thing for him, and it, it moves him further along the career path and all that good stuff. But uh, I think he moved to captain is what it what it turns out to be. But uh but it means that he's low man on the totem pole when it comes to schedule. So he uh, unfortunately kind of has to take the schedule that's given to him. And oftentimes that means most of the time, unfortunately, it means he can't be here with us. Oh, so, so we can't say, yo, man, it's Mackie Gab and I got to take some time off. Okay. I know. No, that's cool. Right. That's cool. All right. So what Phil says is I have mailboxes containing client related emails for each of their projects. Once a project is complete, there could be dozens or even a hundred plus emails related to a particular project. I would like to archive these as PDF files so I can then store them on my hard drive with their non-email files in the very rare case. I would need to find information in them, in them sometime in the future. An app called Email Archiver seems to be a good solution as it stores attachments in a folder with the email name, but was wondering if you had any other suggestions. Thanks for the great show, Phil. Absolutely, Phil. <laughs> and I have a suggestion where you don't have to use a third-party product. And it was quite, uh, it was summarized in a, uh, which we'll link to, but it was summarized in a Mac OS X Hints article. But to summarize what they're suggesting, so the thing is, in mail, you can archive things, though so you may have to take some extra steps here. And we won't talk about the archive feature that gets kind of confusing maybe we'll wrap up with that dave but anyways if you have a bunch of emails and you would like to take them and i'm going to define archive in this sense as writing them to the hard drive so you can look at them later so what this hint says is basically to save an entire email exchange from mail app to a text file select the messages 
and I guess this is worth discussing, how do you select things in general? And I would say in general in programs, when you want to select things, whether it be the finder or email, if you have individual items that you you would like to, and this is a great opportunity. I didn't even think of talking about this state, but I think it's important because it's not obvious how to do this. And that, so say you have a window full of files and you want to select individual files. So the easiest thing is if you click on one and then you hold down shift and you click on another, that highlights the entire range of messages. And that happens in most programs. Now, if you want to select individual items, and here's the fun part here, you click on one and then if you hold down, sorry. Hold down the command key. Apple, which is the Apple or the Cloverleaf or the command key, that then does what I'll call a disjoint selection process. And that it doesn't select a range, but it selects individual items. And that's the other way in almost every Mac program. And it's not obvious to a new user that's what you do, but I thought we'd throw this in just for extra value, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you select uh, items in a window, whether it be a mail window or a finder window, that you don't want to select everything. You just want to select this and that and this and that. So that's how you do that. But once you do do that, Dave. And, and I will add to that if you accident, if you're selecting things in that way and you click on one that you didn't intend to click on, you probably would do this intuitively, but we'll spell it out. You can click on something that is selected and deselect it. So you can manage your selections. Just make sure you you keep the command key down uh, when you're doing those clicks so that it selects and deselects and doesn't just reset your list. Right. So to continue with the tip here. So moving on from the part where it says select the messages, we just covered that you want to save, then go to file, save as and save the messages as plain text or rich text. And then the resulting file will have all the items ordered by date. However, uh, so that would probably work for this, but Dave, I think there's a way to go beyond this. And and the process is a little different in mail. If you'd rather have, if you'd rather save messages as PDF rather than text and PDF, of course, if you have preview or reader or whatever, you can search through them. Um, In this case, you do a little different process. So you go through the same selection process, but you then go to somewhat non-intuitively the file menu and the say print. And then I think it's actually save as PDF. That's right. No, no, that's absolutely right. In the print dialogue down in the lower left-hand corner, you will see a PDF option. And if you click on that, there will be lots of things there. Uh, And that's actually worth looking at. But, but the second one, typically the second one is save as PDF and it will take whatever you're printing. And this is true of any app. Um, it will take whatever you're you're going to print, and instead of printing it, it will create a PDF that would look like what you were about to print, and uh, and then off it goes. But uh, but you can kind of extending this beyond and doing other things. If you wanted to mail a PDF of something to someone, to email a PDF of something to someone, you can do it right from there. You can choose mail as PDF. You could save it and then, of course, attach it to an email and and do it as a two step process. But you can actually do it as a one step process right there too. So, yeah, it's right. good stuff. Now, the nuance here, I believe, is that at least the way mail operates, though I didn't verify this, but the article says this, so hopefully I'm right or wrong or whatever, but, but we'll mention the nuance here is that when mail app saves PDFs, if you do this, uh, unlike the text file methodology, it will save them as individual PDFs. So you may ask yourself, how do I take, 
So maybe beforehand, if you're going to take a whole bunch of mail messages and save them to PDFs, you may want to create a temporary folder. Well, you don't have to do it beforehand. You can do it right there. Uh, You can do it right there. You can create a new folder. And then what, what will happen is all the emails will be saved as individual PDFs. So you may then ask yourself, how do I work this? Or you may ask yourself, <laughs> don't go. I know what you're going to say, but don't do it. Maybe say it later. So what you can do then is then once you've saved all the individual PDFs to a folder, uh, and this is part of the tip, and it's important though, is once you're done doing that, then open one of them in preview. And then here's the trick. And I think it's a, a good preview tip because I love talking about preview tips and Dave knows this. <laughs> Yes. And you will then take, uh, so once you've opened the initial PDF, uh, allegedly you can then highlight all the other PDFs that are in the folder, drag them into that window, and then they will all be in that window, in which case you can then save them by going to the preview save menu, I think uh, save as menu, and save all of those guys as a single PDF. And that is your archive for that project. So, Somewhat involved workflow, but once you do it, and you know, I'm sure you can do this, Dave, through Apple Script or Automator. Um, but I think this is pretty straightforward, but yep. it, it, it's not automatic. So here's how you archive your emails so you can search them later as PDFs. Cool. While we are on the subject of mail, uh, we will go to David's question. And he says, I have a question about junk mail filtering that I haven't figured out how to resolve. So I thought I would ask my two favorite geeks for some help. We appreciate it. We're glad you came. Uh, He says the vast majority of email goes through my Gmail account. I'm using Apple mail as my client on OS 10. And I want to use Gmail spam filters as my only spam filtering service. However, when I converted my Gmail accounts to IMAP, I followed the guidelines and at the time mapped junk in Gmail to the junk folder in mail and drafts to drafts, deleted to trash and sent to sent. In order to get junk email folders to show up in mail, I have to have the junk mail filtering turned on. If I turn off junk filtering in mail, then the folder disappears from my mailboxes list and I don't ever see how much spam mail I am getting. I'd like to check and clean out my junk mail daily And I'm having a lot of issues with things getting flagged as junk by the mail filter and going into the junk folder. I keep telling it that it isn't junk. Okay, so uh, he says, do you guys know of any way that I can keep the junk mail folder active in Apple Mail, but not have the Apple junk mail filtering turned on? I'm not sure if I'm being clear with my description of the problem, but I'm hopeful that you'll be able to come up with some suggestions. Okay, so really what you want is... You you want Apple's junk mail filtering turned off and you want to be able to see your junk mail folder. But early on in the process, you made a selection that essentially turns off your ability to see the junk mail folder or Gmail spam folder, I should say, if junk mail filtering is disabled. Let's explain why. And then I'll tell you how to solve it. When you set up an IMAP account in mail you see all these folders that are present on the server and os 10 makes some guesses about which one of those folders is your deleted messages which one is your sent messages and which one is your junk messages and if it can't find a folder called 
deleted messages. It creates one. Well, that's sort of silly when Gmail uses a folder called trash for that. And the same with sent messages. You know, Gmail calls it outbox, I believe. So the trick is you need to tell mail, no, no, don't use deleted messages for trash. Use trash for trash. And the way you do that is you highlight Gmail's trash folder and then you go up to the mailbox menu and say, use this mailbox for, and then you're going to choose trash. But there's four options there. There's drafts, sent, trash, and junk. What David did was he selected Gmail's spam folder and chose it as junk. And once you do that, there's no easy way to undo that. And so this creates this problem because the junk folder, as Apple Mail knows it, it's hidden when you turn off junk mail filtering. And he doesn't want that, but he does want Apple's junk mail filtering off. So I have a solution. The first part of the solution is to create a new folder on your IMAP server. And the best way to do that or the simplest way to do it is to go to the mailbox menu and say new mailbox and make sure that the location of that mailbox is on your Gmail account and then just name it junk temp. Trust me on this. Name it junk temp. Okay. Now that you've created that, highlight that folder. It should be empty. Once you've highlighted that folder, go up to the mailbox menu and say, use this mailbox for junk. Now you have moved the pointer from your actual spam mailbox to this junk temp mailbox. At this point, your spam mailbox should appear inside the Gmail folder hierarchy and you can manage it. As you like, and if you turn off Apple's junk mail filtering, which you're going to do now, the spam mailbox will still appear. The junk temp mailbox won't, but that doesn't matter. Now you could go into the server and delete the, the junk temp label that will appear in Gmail for you. And that'll be fine. Apple mail will just say, oh, I don't have a pointer to anything junk on the server. It may create something, but it doesn't matter because it's not going to be in use. So. That's the trick, and that's how to undo that selection that you did early on. You like my logic on that one, Mr. Braun? Tricky. Yes. Trixie. No, mm. Trixie was, uh, was Ed Norton's wife's name. It's just tricky. I remember a local production here called Trixie True Teen Detective. Don't even try to find it because I don't think you will. It was a local, <laughs> local theater production. Trixie too. Okay. Wow. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but I will say that, that what David is doing with using Gmail's spam filtering as his only spam filtering is really, really smart um, because Gmail's got a pretty good spam filter. You do need to manage it as you do any spam filter. You can't just blindly trust it. And uh, as an aside, Gmail spam filter will delete anything older than 30 days in the spam folder. So you've got to make sure to manage it more than once a month. I recommend once every two weeks, even once every week. Uh, David does it every day. That's fine, too. Uh, but the nice part about using Gmail spam filter is that it is what I'll call server side. It's happening on the server and is not reliant on your Mac to do any work at all, which means you get the benefit of spam filtering on all of your mobile devices, including your iPhone and your iPad. And that's a beautiful thing. So there you go. Except when it doesn't work, Dave, because you and I actually ran into this. So you had sent me a query. Yeah. Via email. And I was like, huh? Well, that's why you have to manage it. 
and see it, which yeah, is important. Yep. But anyways, you were like, I sent you this, John. And I'm like, no, you didn't. And you're like, yeah, I did. And I'm like, okay, let me look as unlikely as it may seem. I looked in my Gmail spam folder and it did flag your first message about whatever topic it was in Gmail spam. But the second one, once you said, did you get it? And I'm like, no, you sent it to me. It didn't, which is like, well, it was the exact same content almost. So it's like, why did you let the first one go in spam and the second one didn't? But that's the nature of spam detection technology, I suppose. It is. Yeah. And Gmail spam filtering is a little interesting because you're getting um, you have two levels of training that happen with Gmail spam filtering. One is sort of the prevalent one is everyone's spam filtering training sort of amalgamated. Uh, that's the wrong word. Well, group sourced. Yeah. Group right? sourced. Yeah, exactly. I do that whenever I get a spam in Gmail on my Gmail account. Yeah or the one that's linked to it, I will always report it as spam because I hope it helps the, the, the masses. Right. Right. That's right. And, and the way you report it, Gmail makes it really easy to report things as spam or not as spam as, as ham, as it were. Uh, you do that by mo- I, simply moving them in or out of your Gmail spam folder. So if well, that's to it, so total- you don't have to explicitly identify it as spam there is the Gmail web interface. No, sir. Good to know. Yeah. If you put it, but here's, Thank here's you. an important trick. If you, you, if you put it into the spam folder, it will be considered spam and Gmail will train it that way, both for the masses, but also for you. And it sort of keeps your own little, uh, blacklist and whitelist, if you will. It's, that's a little oversimplification, but that's what it does. However, if you move something out of the spam folder, it says, okay, this is not spam. But here's an interesting thing about how IMAP does things. If you go into your spam folder and 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 in from mail, if you go into your spam folder and hit the delete button, it moves the message from your spam folder to your trash folder. And by taking it out of your spam folder, you have now marked all of those messages as not spam. It is smart enough. No. It is not smart enough. If you go into your spam folder and delete messages, hear what I'm saying, right? right? You see, okay, I've got, you know, uh, Rolex clones and, you know, um, (laughs) ED drugs and, you know, all this other great stuff. And you say, yep, this is spam. I want to delete it, which is a natural response. And you start deleting those messages. If you use mails default delete functionality, it will mark them as not spam because you are taking them out of the spam folder. You happen to be putting them in the trash folder, but that doesn't matter. You're taking them out of the spam folder. So to Google, removing something from the spam folder indicates it's not spam. Correct. And And the problem is that they can't distinguish, though they should be able to, between moving something and deleting something. Did I get that? Yes, but when you when you know, it knows the difference between moving and deleting. The problem okay. is when you trash something in mail, it moves it. It does not delete it. So there is a way. There are two ways to delete things from your spam folder in Gmail and still retain their status as spam. Number one is to do it from Gmail's web interface. There's a little button that you hit when you're looking at spam and it says delete spam. And, and that will that obviously works. The other is to actively delete them without moving them to the trash. And that is done by, and I'm going to do this just to make sure because I don't trust my, uh, my, uh, my, my muscle memory here. If you go to the, 
Where are we here? I want to make sure I'm getting this right. I believe it is command and option. If you hold down command and option and then hit delete, that will delete the message and not move it to trash. It will just delete it and do nothing else. And I'm just hmm. making sure of this, but it's so buried inside mail that it is impossible to get this right. <laughs> yeah. Bear with me. It's, I, I know that yeah. that's the, I know that that's the trick, but uh, let's see. Yeah, that's it. It's command option delete. I wish I could find the menu item that, uh, that that maps to that, but I I honestly can't. But I I am certain it is command option delete. If you just do, I see. I, what I was trying to remember is if you do command delete, does that also do it? But uh, but I can't remember, and so I always just do command option delete, and that just deletes the message. It does not pass go. It doesn't go to the trash folder first. It just deletes it and marks it as expunged, and that's what you want huh. for your yeah. yeah. All right. Indeed. So that's that. You want to uh, you want to do another one Phil. from Phil, or you want to go to Amy? Phil, go. Uh, I I like both Phil and Amy. I I really like them equally, but but Phil's first on the list. So, <laughs> but I think we'll get to Amy. Maybe. Maybe. All right. So Phil says, <clears throat> "Sorry, hard to shield that, but it sounded gross. Sorry. All right." Phil says, I heard about this on your podcast and want to use it to speed up my home internet. Oh my gosh, let me back up. What is he talking about? He's talking about NameBench, which NameBench is a utility that is part of the uh, Google open source community. And what does it do? Well, it does two things. So one, well, it does one thing, really. So everybody needs uh, that is on the internet or internets needs to access something called a domain name server. This is the server somewhere out on the internet, whether from your internet service provider or your company or whatever, or you may have a local one, which cool, um, translates IP addresses, which are your numeric addresses, which is how the internet works to names like www.macgeekapp.com. And that equates to a number. The thing is, some DNS servers are faster than others. And the one that you are initially set up with, probably through your internet service provider, may not be the fastest. Now, I don't know the grand scheme of things, Dave, or, or uh, if a, a slow DNS server is going to really slow you down, though it could if, if it's malfunctioning. So why not have a utility that tells you, hey, here's some other ones that are available to you. Um. So number one, NameBench, we'll link to that, of course, uh, is a utility that will reach out and and find DNS servers and measure the response time from them. And the assumption here is if they respond quicker, then your entire internet experience will be faster. But then the question is, what do I do with this data? Because basically what it comes back to you with is saying, okay, well, here's a list of servers and here's uh, pretty much I think their IP addresses or maybe names and these are fastest. What do I do with that data? Right. And, that, and, and two, just to just to because everybody in the chat room is asking this question. Yes, we did just talk about this last week. And and we get a follow up question from Phil saying, when you use NameBench, what do you you know, you get this data. Where do you put that data? What do you do with it? And uh, and that's where we're going to go. Right. And where we're going is there are two places you could put that data. 
So one is in. Hmm. You go about this. Well, there's two places. One is on your computer. Right. So, so so you're right. So there are two places you could put it that the, uh, I would say the, the brute force approach is to put the IP address that Namebench recommends as the fastest as the DNS server on every computer or iDevice that you connect to the internet. And I would say that's one way of doing it. It's, it's not wrong, but, but it's probably, uh, you know, uh, takes time because you got to go to each device. You got to go to their particular internet screen and, and see whether they even allow you to change this. And I think they do in, in, uh, for the most part. So at least on Mac OS 10, if you go to system preferences network, and then you bring up that screen and you go to advanced, you will see a DNS entry and it will ask you, well, DNS servers, what do you want? And now, at least on my machine here, Dave, what it has, which I think is a good part of the discussion and, and part of uh, how most things are set up, it has the IP address of my airport extreme, which is 172.16.1.1, which, oh, that's a... Uh, local NAT address. Well, yes, it is. Why is that a problem? Well, it's not a problem, but what, what it's suggesting is that in one model, what you have is all your devices pointing to your router. Okay, here's the tricky part. They're all pointing to the router because 172.16.1.1 is my router. They're pointing to the router and then the router basically has the IP address that it has to talk to the DNS world. So this is really a convenience in that if your machines are set up to have the IP address of your router as a DNS server, then all you have to do is set the IP address of whatever DNS server you want on your router, and then life is good. Right? That's right. Which, which, leads, to, which leads to the second place that you could do this, right? So when you go into, just to, to kind of dig in a little bit here, um, when you go into OS 10's network configuration, you will see, as John pointed out, you know, you go into advanced, you go to DNS, you will see the IP address of whatever was automatically assigned as your DNS server. But that will be in gray. That's the one that is auto assigned and it will happen by default. If you add a new one in here, it will be in black. And that is the forced one that you've now put on your Mac. Uh, so if you take the forced one out, it will go back to whatever's in gray. And uh, and that works. But and it's a that's a good way to test things or to override things and see, you know, if you run name bench and you decide, OK, yeah, I like this. Uh, but well, before you decide whether you like this and you don't want to impact your entire network, go do it on just one Mac and play with it for a couple of days. Make sure you actually like it. Then once you do, you will go into your uh, airport utility or whatever screen you have for your router and assign the DNS on your router there and that have that override what you get from your cable company. And now your router's DNS is going to use this, whatever name bench has recommended for you and every computer on your network and every iOS device and everything that connects is now going to get the benefit of whatever this faster speed is. Right. The only annoyance I found Dave is that when I ran the latest airport utility, which is the newer kind of restricted one, it did not let me enter new DNS addresses. It had the DNS address of my ISP, but it would not let me manually enter new ones, which kind of annoyed me. 
So I don't know if this is a problem with. Now, dude, mine's letting me type them in. Hmm? I I have the latest on here and, uh, and I just highlight my, my time capsule. Okay. I hit edit. I go to internet. And, yeah, I know where uh, to go. But, uh, for whatever well, reason, let me tell, let me tell, let the, me. let me tell the listeners where to go. Go. <laughs> I hit edit. I go to internet, and uh, you connect to the internet via DHCP, and then there you put in DNS servers, and uh, and and that's it. And 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 again, like like, will happen what on I'm your Mac. What I'm saying is, I could not enter. I could. They were grayed out, and I could not enter additional ones in right. my particular. I get that, which is bad. No, I, okay. I, I get right. You're having a problem, but I, I would love to tell our listeners where to go to do this. They will see them grayed out. The the ones that you get from your ISP will be in gray, and but you can override them in most cases. Now, in your case, you can't. You might need to do a refresh of your settings on your uh, okay. on your on your. Because I know capsule. I should be able to. Totally it just didn't let me to. at the point in time I tried it. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, the yeah, airport utility is weird sometimes with editing things. I've uh, I've had that too, where things won't, you know, you can't get in there and do things, and you just quit the utility and relaunch it, and then it okay. boom, it lets you. Is well, it letting also, you now? Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to, but but the, yeah. but the other thing is that there is the old school. I believe is the five six version of airport utility. Yep. So Apple did a sneaky thing, I think, in that they they launched a new version of the airport utility that kind of hid or almost like excluded some features from the utility and some people shook their fist. And uh, because Apple listens to Dave and I, when we shake our fists, they, they re-release the older version. I think it's five now, Dave. Yeah, but it doesn't work with mountain lion uh, directly. Uh, You have to, yeah, there's a, there's a, um, yeah, it does not work with mountain lion. But uh, but there is a magic utility out there that we'll put in the show notes. Hopefully we can find it before the show notes go live. Um, But there's a utility that will modify. There's a couple of things that need to be modified in order for it to let that airport utility run on a mountain lion Mac. But once you do these things, it runs just fine. And there are some features that you can do. But this feature is available in either one. So you don't you don't need it to do this, but but there are reasons to to do the other one. We'll find that link. Maybe somebody in the chat room will will find it for us. And uh, and with that, I will say hello to everyone in our chat room uh, at macgeekup.com slash stream. They, you have been there uh, through the whole show, actually, and uh, and feeding us little tidbits of information. So greetings, folks. It's great to have you here with us on a Monday evening. All right. Uh, Speaking of time capsules, uh, I will address one thing because I've had a lot of emails from people on this. I was ranting in show 448 about uh, about my frustrations with the with time machine and specifically with time capsule. And Jeff wrote, he said, you know, listening to one of the episodes, listening to 448, um, I heard Dave lament about time machine being a big pain. He says, I have it. Uh, I have used it with a physically connected drive for years and have rarely, if ever, had issues. He says, I can see how time capsule would be problematic. It's a hard drive shared by multiple computers and no computer should automatically delete another computer's data or user documents that happen to also live there. Time machine has to mount a disk image on a NAS drive. So simply losing a network connection for whatever reason, Wi-Fi, flaky connection, packet loss could damage the disk. 
and says, I've never had any interest in using time machine via time capsule for these reasons. Uh, a backup should be reliable time machine via via time capsule. Doesn't sound like it. And, and to address this point, because Jeff sort of uh, crystallized it, but many of you asked it both on Twitter and, uh, and also via email. Yeah, I agree. But Apple sells the time capsule. So in theory, it should work. And if they know, and I get that with a NAS drive, time machine is, is it's a flaky proposition and it, it, it doesn't surprise me that it does not work. What surprises me is that Apple continues to sell the time capsule knowing that this thing is a, you know, is a, a opportunity fraught with disaster. So that's my, <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it's, it, it totally is right. I mean, it, you know, things, weird things happen all the time. Apple, it, what's frustrating is that Apple doesn't put any logic into the time capsule itself to manage this. The time capsule in this situation is treated like just a dumb network share on, you know, undifferent, in, in, uh, not different from any other just dumb NAS drive. Why? Why is that the case? Why don't we have time machine logic built into the time capsule so that time machine, when it feeds it data, we can get some, you know, the, the computer could get some response back saying, hey, I got this. You're good to send me the next one. And there could be this this real handshake and back and forth that could go on. I mean, Apple, you know, that's their whole thing is they designed the whole widget. Why did they design this widget to be so one sided and and so um, so flaky? Yeah. I, that's that's my thing. So there yeah. you go. That's my thing. I'm, I'm good. They designed it to be a one way push backup solution with no choices for when you do what. And right. And that's good enough for probably 99% of the public. Honestly, I, I guess I, I don't know. I hear a lot of people and we get a, you, you see the emails that come in. We yeah, have a it, lot of people do, with but, but, problems with it. But again, I say like my 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 mom, my mom is set up with time capsule. She yeah. doesn't know it exists. It does what it should. It does it every hour. She doesn't seem to have an issue with it. Actually, I think I may have on her machine, which I think is a couple of versions back, or at least one version back on Mac OS X. And I think I, at the very least, I set it up so it doesn't run every hour. And things she doesn't know it's there. She doesn't care. And, and that's probably a good thing. And oh, it's I connected to the airport extreme. And she doesn't know it's there. And when she needs it, if she ever does... Uh, it'll be there. So uh, but I, I think uh, we're, well, we're getting into geek space here, but but we should because we're Mac Geek App, right? Um, in, in that the, the finer, they're lacking finer control of the whole process. You're defending them in a situation where I think that you're very wrong to do so because your mom is the perfect example of why time capsule should have more logic. Because if your mom runs into the same problem that any of us run into, She's screwed. Right? I mean, it, I, I can help her. Well, right. <laughs> well, she without has me, you. yes. Well, without me, then yes, she may be yeah. very confused. But, well, the, but, but I like it as a passive solution where she doesn't even know it exists. I, but it that's happens, what I'm saying. She sees a hard drive light blinking. And, yep. you know, if and when it comes to the point where she has to restore something, I just hope that uh, uh, Time hope, Machine has done it accurately. I hope that it, the backup's not corrupted. You know, and hope that she hasn't been hitting OK on this message that's been coming up for three weeks saying uh, you're back. Well, she tells me that when, when she gets a major error, she tells me. But, but no, I'm with you. But I, she's I she's unique because I watched Windows users for years dismiss those types of things so automatically <laughs> that I had to literally push them away from the keyboard 
so that I could see error messages, you know, because because they would they just got so used to dismissing them that they would ask me to help with their computer and they'd sit down and they just, oh, well, we just click that away. I'm like, da, 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 slow down. How do we know what's wrong with your computer if we're not reading this? Well, that always comes up. Right. And you've always had this problem. That's why you called me. Right. Oh, yeah. Good point. You know, then we'd have to find the error message again. Yeah, okay. So people, you know, those things come up at inopportune times. You're in the middle of trying to write an email and it comes up and says time machine. Blah. You're like, I don't care about time machine right now. I'm writing an email. Boom. And it's gone. You haven't read it. I do it. And I'm a geek. I know not to do that. You know, I know to read what my computer's telling right. me. I don't know. I'm not good. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, follow, <laughs> follow. Yeah. Following up from, uh, from show 446 while we're in follow up mode here. Um, Dave had a great thing and you know what? Unfortunately, do I not have it here? Um, oh, you know why I don't have it? Because it's not, not. it's not via email. I have one, but well. uh, let's see. Let me find it here. I got it. I got it. I got it. We know we talked about iTunes, uh, iTunes playlist. And, and specifically we talked about, uh, con- we've, we've talked a lot about converting songs, uh, inside iTunes. And, uh, and you know, if we have songs that are AACs and we want to convert them to MP3, but we don't want to be left with two versions of everything. I think the, uh, the end all be all of that conversation is, Doug's Apple scripts for iTunes convert and export uh, that will do all of this. Uh, and everybody sent in these tips, but, uh, but really this, this thing from Doug, what it does is it takes the songs you've highlighted, converts them to MP3 exports them, and then deletes them from iTunes all in one fell swoop. So, uh, so we will link to that just to, just to, you know, just to, to get that done. Mm-hmm. And that one's good. Right. So what do you got next, John? Uh, I don't know about Michael. You want to do, you want to do Amy? You said you were, uh, Oh, Amy question. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, well, I don't like what happened. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So from Amy, hi guys, the short version, grab my laptop as I was leaving work today and put it in my laptop bag. Cool. Got home and went to do other things. About two and a half hours later, I went to grab the laptop to check something and realized that it never went to sleep when I closed the lid. Star, star. Oh, I often run boot camp and I've been running it with an external monitor and clamshell, so it changed the settings in Windows to do nothing when the lid was closed. So it is not a bug in power management, just a bug with my brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for the star star. So it had been on insulated and in the bag for about two and a half hours. Needless to say, the chassis itself were quite warm and (laughs) I've run into this as well. Um, And the fans were running at full speed. What concerns me most though, is that there was the definite smell of toasty electronics, no actual magic blue smoke though, which as uh, our listeners may know, um, blue smoke is what is contained in uh, magic uh, smoke, not blue smoke, magic smoke. Uh, or blue smoke, but magic smoke is what is contained in uh, integrated circuits, uh, which you see in all your devices. And when it is released, they stop working. It, yeah, so, it is. It is. Magic smoke is what all electronics run on. And if you let it out, they can no longer run. And you know this because if you've ever seen the magic right. smoke come out of an electronic device, it no longer runs after the smoke has been released. So there you go. Right. Moving so on. 
I was able to shut it down with seemingly no issues and will power it back up once once the chassis is back to room temperature. But is there anything I can check to ensure I did not do permanent damage? Thanks for spreading your wealth of knowledge, Amy. Thank you, Amy. So, Amy, what I said to her was, I recall having this problem in the past, having a Macro Pro in a bag that did and and the computer did not shut down properly. Or woke up when it shouldn't have, and when I didn't expect it to, and then it got very warm to the touch. Although I would say if the machine starts up, you're okay, you may want to run Apple hardware test. And we will link to Apple hardware test. In general, Dave, though, I think most computers or any computer, if it's properly designed, and I would certainly assume Apple products are, if you reach what I I would say is a thermal limit of any component, the machine is instructed to shut down to prevent damage. So... Although it was in a bag and fans were spinning and all that stuff there, I think it was in a state where it did not reach a temperature because the fans were there, that um, it, it was it was beyond the temperature. And actually, most people or any processor manufacturer will have a temperature and will have on the chip itself sensors to determine this. If you get beyond a certain temperature, it shuts down and should tell the system. And I assume this happens in max. It'll be like, dude, I'm, I'm melting down, shut down, please. So the only thing I could suggest, number one, if your machine starts up and this is another thing that is inherent to almost any modern PC or Mac, uh, when your machine starts up, it runs something called a post or a, a power on self test, which checks basic things like saying, have you melted down the processor? No. Okay, let's continue. Now, in the case of Apple, though, there is something called Apple hardware test. And this is a utility that is either included on the disk that you get with your machine or uh, you can invoke when you start the machine up, typically by holding down, I believe, uh, Apple Clover command whatever d which stands for diagnostics and it will run apple hardware test and tell you if any of the hardware components are edged. but again my suspicion is if the machine starts up it's gotten past the past the initial checks for damage and you're okay now you 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 did say you 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 know detected a smell of something burning I mean, I'm wondering if that was maybe the dust or gunk or whatever that accumulated in the machine, and it just kind of, you know, yeah, it did <laughs> get that hot out for you. Yeah, right. I mean, it, yeah, it did get hot, so that it would stand to reason that you're going to smell and there's, something. And there's a smell. There's a you know burning dust smell, and then there's a burning electronic smell. And I don't know if Amy has ever encountered burning electronic smell. Ozone. I have. I think you have, Dave. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a, a it's a distinct smell. It, oh, it's ozone is I mean is what you're smelling, but it's hard to hard to describe that. It's like describing color. You know, you, you can't. In fact, I yelled at an eye doctor once. He's like, "Oh, you're partially colorblind." I said, "I am." Describe red to me, and he sort of stopped. He's like, "Well, you don't see red like I do." I'm like, yeah, good. Describe it to me. Go. Many words as you want. Describe. Well, there's a clear test for. Color blindness. Yeah, I know the little color patches, and can you see the words? The, the, it's called that, the right? Isa, Isahara test, is what it's called. Is ooh, good. Yeah, man, I'm not messing around here, and I, uh, I can, I can usually pass those. So you know, so anyway. So do you have like you know? There's red, green, and yeah, who cares? I yeah, I have some level of. I think I have some level of like blue, yellow, which is sort of weird, but. Um, but anyway, hmm. yeah, 
Yeah, they, right. they, it's but Amy, I think you're in good shape. If the machine turns on, I would say in 99 out of 100 or 99.9 out of 100 cases, if the machine powers on, it's it's cool. Yes. Maybe go to an Apple store. I don't yeah, know. Well, no, check I've, it out. I've, I've I, don't had this I don't know if there's mine. anything additional they could do. I mean, what could they do? Maybe run a more enhanced uh, utility versus I wouldn't hardware obs- test? I wouldn't right? obsess over it. No. I, like you said, if it starts up, I think you're good to go. The, the one thing is, um, I have seen this, and I occasionally still see this with my laptops, that the machine will be in some state that it doesn't, recognize that the lid has closed and so it doesn't go into that that you know auto sleep mode well i've and, seen that i've had that and that's the latch either the latch or the magnets are no because it, it happens with machines that don't have latches i mean it's 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 um there's a software issue where okay. where that it, you know the machine is doing something and so that trigger sort of gets overrun you know what I mean? It's it, uh, it, it, the machine thinks, ah, you want me to keep running and for whatever reason. And of course you don't because it can run in clamshell mode. Right. You know, so there is a way that the machine can say, yes, we are closed. What but is keep running? And, and I got to ask you, Dave, now what is clamshell mode? Clamshell mode is when you are using your laptop without with it closed, but have an external monitor and or and usually keyboard and mouse plugged in. But they can be Bluetooth. Um, so they don't have to be physically plugged in, but you can use your laptop closed up and all Mac laptops are built to be run this way, not inside a backpack. Really? Uh, typically. Yeah. Cool. But, uh, but you can plug a monitor in and another <laughs> keyboard in. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. They tend to require a little airflow, but, um, or at least advise airflow, but every, every Mac laptop can be run in what's called clamshell mode where it, it just runs and, and you've got external stuff and it's just essentially a really expensive computer with a monitor and keyboard that you're not using. Um, but, uh, so, so there's something that can happen when you close it that makes it think, ah, we're in clamshell mode now, giddy up, let's go, you know? And, uh, and that's why it keeps running. And of course, burning down your battery in, uh, in your backpack while you're, while you're totally unaware. So, uh, and it can happen. I, I've seen it happen where I've, I've had like a Bluetooth mouse inside my bag and it's on and I accidentally click the button and it wakes you it up. Read, you read my mind in that there are events that can wake up a machine and Bluetooth gadgets. Yeah. Showing activity will tell the machine. Oh, we're having Skype problems, Mr. Braun. I don't know if it's me or you, but it's uh, you're gone. Mr. Braun. All right. Well, I will magically pause the record. Hey, whoa, I don't have to pause the recording. Are you back? I'm here. All right, cool. I'm not sure what that was. The stats though. Are you doing a, are you doing a backup or is it me? (laughs) No, I see no backups. And well, we're at 16 right now. Yeah. I think it'll increase. We are now at 24. We are back. Yeah. You are back. Generalized Skype hiccup. Yeah. That was weird though. It wouldn't surprise me if some computer woke up now that I'm home and, uh, and started backing up, but my bandwidth, That's it. my bandwidth usage is, is happy. So, but, uh, you know, that is a, uh, so yes, it, it, it is possible for this to happen via software. Um, and honestly, you know, it used to be, I used to be wait when I closed my laptop to hear the hard drive spin down. Cause sort of, that was my, my cue that, yep, everything went, but with SSDs, you don't get that. Uh, I do look to make sure that the screen has, powered off and it's not glowing kind of, you know, out the edges. Um, and oftentimes that's enough of a cue 
to keep me from, from doing this, but I still, you know, probably, I don't know, two or three times a year. I wind up with, uh, with a computer that, you know, with my laptop in my bag and it just ran for a while. So it's just way, mm-hmm. the way it is. But, uh, you know, the, the real trick here, John, is that, uh, I think it's time to, uh, to bring the band in and, uh, it, it is that time again. Really? Yeah, man. Well, all I got to say, Dave, is based on my, my, uh, journeys this afternoon, the band must have had a wonderful time because I was out and about today, 70s, just strolling about. The birds are singing, the trees are flowering. Well, actually, the trees have stopped flowering. Other things are flowering, but the trees stopped that sort of thing. Well, all right. I guess I guess that's a good thing, that the trees have stopped flowering, right? It means the, the seasons uh, for are moving those who are For those who are prone to... Uh, 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 pollen-related uh, ailments. Yes, it is. <laughs> but I'm not. But um, Dave, you know what? We're at the end here, but the end is just the beginning. Wouldn't you agree? And the it beginning is. is. Yeah, the, and, the end is the beginning it, of the next show. <laughs> and the beginning is, if you want to be part of the next show, uh, you probably want to get in touch with us to, to send us questions, tips, comments, cookies, brownies, um whatever and yeah. the way you would do that Dave I think is the first way is you would send us an email at feedback at com. that's feedback at com. that's right and if you didn't quite hear that do the Skype weirdness Dave said feedback at com. but that's not the only way you can reach us Dave no, it's not. You can. Uh, all right. You can find us on just about every social network known to man. I'm going to jump out of order here a little bit, John. So you can find us on or tw- woman. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I meant man as a as a as a species, but uh, all but inclusive. Yes, yes. But, no, yes I, I meant to be all inclusive uh, on Twitter. We as the show are Mac Geekab. He is John F. Braun. I am Dave Hamilton. Mac Observer is Mac Observer. And Pilot Pete, of course, is Pilot Pete. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Mac Geekab. Of course, John and I are also there, too. Uh, you can find us on app.net at uh, Mac Geekab, of course. Also, uh, Dave Hamilton and John F. Braun. And you can find us on Google+, Plus, which was just really uh, really revamped last week, and uh, and we will post our mm. our appointments. Why are you moaning while I'm talking? We will post our appointments to uh, to that and to Facebook because I know some of you prefer to use Google Plus and some of you prefer to use Facebook. So we will make sure that we have a because presence I in- don't like you uh, because I don't grok AppNet or G Plus. That's why I'm moaning. and that's not Just that's okay. That's you don't have to, it, but that doesn't mean you need to groan about the people that do grok that. We have folks that like Sorry. it all. My problem, Dave, uh, honestly to. To all the listeners, I need a good MacApp.net client. I haven't Kiwi. found one that's free. You got to pay for stuff that's good. It's Kiwi. All right. Yeah. Or maybe they'll toss me one because yeah, we're MacApp. <laughs> uh, no, go and buy one from Isaiah. He he writes good software. What is it? How, how many bucks? It's like three dollars or something. I mean, it's, no, it's not going to break right. the bank here. Jeez. Yeah, I know. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I love Kiwi. Okay. All right. All right. You may have convinced me. Good. Kiwi yeah, Kiwi's good. Because I have, well, I have one on my iPhone. I'm, I'm trying to remember what, it, what it's called, but it, it looks cool. I use, uh, I paid for it, of course. I use uh, NetBot on my, on my iPhone. I got that for free. 
So I'm cool with that, but I, I, I can't exclusively access a social media service from my iPhone. So, all right, right Kiwi, I'll, I'll break down and yeah, yeah, throw yeah. three bucks or whatever to him. Yeah. Okay. All right, you convinced me. All right. Good. Yeah. But it's redundant. Isn't that also G+. No, actually, right. I have different. It's really interesting on app.net. I wind up having very different types of conversations than really? I do because on Twitter. you're not limited by the 140 character, right? Yeah, and maybe I just have, maybe I follow. Or the population. Maybe I follow a, slightly different people and pe- slightly okay. different okay. people follow me. I don't know. Ex- I couldn't put my finger on it, but it's it's definitely different. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. So there you go. I think, did we give all of the. Yeah, I think we've got Twitters, the Facebooks. Uh, Google Plus. AppNet. App. With a little uh, you know, fish shake here. And, uh, yeah. And, of course, really the Mac Geekab app. You can, uh, you can download the Mac Geekab app where we uh, send out push notifications for the, uh, the show going live. Uh, you can download the show and listen to the show. You can comment on the show. You can even listen live when we're here in the stream. It's all good stuff. So there you go. Uh, you can also call us if you want to leave us a voicemail, 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is 403,035. Is that right? No, 4335. That's 4,335 if we're doing it that way, but, you know, who's listen back. You'll see. Uh, you know, John, I, I want to talk about one little gadget I got today, and we'll, I'll talk briefly about it because I'm sure it'll come up again. But uh, when I got home from my, my uh, vacation today, in the mailbox was my Red Pebble, the uh, the watch that I had funded through Kickstarter, I think in August, mm. maybe July or something. And it's, uh, it's Bluetooth 4, so it syncs with your iPhone, and it's digital, and you may have heard about it. In fact, I think I talked about it when I funded it, you know, almost a year ago. But uh, but it's cool. There's little apps for it that I've been put on it, and uh, very lightweight, very very comfortable to wear. Far more comfortable than I thought it would be to wear. So, uh, so you're I'm a watch geek. So and I'm a watch you're, you're kind of picky. I am picky, and this is the only uh, non mechanical watch that I. Uh, well, I guess I have that Citizen that I wear that we talked about, but but this one is very much a digital watch. But you can customize the watch faces via the app on your iPhone. I, and, there's, and there's other little apps. I even found a little metronome app. It's got a vibrate uh, thing in it. And uh, I may actually wind up using it on stage. There's some tunes that I want to start off at a certain tempo. And it would it would be great to have a vibrating metronome on my person. So, uh, so I'm, 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 you know, it's cool. But what, what realistically will happen with this is I'll use it for a little bit and then my son will commandeer it. Because that's, uh, that's sort of how these sort of gadgets huh. go. But, uh, but for now, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I just got a new watch tape. It was a birthday present. And hey, you know what? It's a Timex. Cool. Yeah. It has numbers. It has hours, minutes, and seconds. The day and the date. And that's it. There you go. Well, I can, I can program I the Pebble that's to do that. All, that's all I need in a watch. Yeah, that's cool. And this uses, the Pebble uses e-paper. So it uh, it's always oh, displaying. I'm aware of the pebble. My my yeah, only. I know my only... you are, but you know there's there's like tens of thousands of like there's like sixty five thousand people that are listening that might want to know. So I know you know, but I know they might not know. So I'm sort of telling uh-huh. you, but by proxy I'm telling them. It's how our little mm-hmm. conversation here works. You know. Um, yeah. It uses e. All I gotta say is. All, all, all I gotta say is my my somewhat reservation, and I'd, I'd really like to hear your experience. Is a watch that requires a battery recharge more than every ten years? 
Yes. And then, as you know, most of the watches that have batteries, I mean, the battery, it's a CO, you know, 6023 right. or 20, or whatever it is, uh, typically lasts for, you know, five to 10 years. Whereas, of course, this watch, it does a heck of a lot more, but I, I'm curious about the user experience and that when you have to dock it or charge it, I mean, doesn't that kind of, isn't that kind of annoying? Uh, it might be. I have yet to need to charge it. So that's why I said I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about it some more. But um, I, yeah, I'm not. I, I think the battery's supposed to last. It's supposed to start warning me when it has 20 hours left. But that's like, you know, I okay. think it, I think it should last about a week. And, and that's and the reason is because it's using e-ink, which is like what the Kindle uses. So it's uh, it's very low battery consumption. It's only using the battery when you're oh, like, sure. updating it or touching it. And uh, and even then, very, very little. It's got a cool thing, though, John. It's got a backlight, and you can set it to turn on the backlight when you flick your wrist. So uh, so the backlight's mm. off, but if you flick your wrist up, it lights up so you can see the watch in the dark, which is kind of cool. Because that is the weakness of e-ink, is that you need a light source. Yep. And actually, that's kind of revolutionary, because when I worked with it, you needed a incandescent or sunlight. Sure. But somebody's figured out a backlight technology for e-ink. That's very cool. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I can dig that. Yeah, it's cool. So, uh, and I, I've, I've got it now when I get an uh, iMessage or an SMS on my phone, it it buzzes my, my wrist and actually shows me the message so I can read it right there on my wrist. I feel like Dick, Dick Tracy, you know, so that that's cool. This is stuff that was in the, uh, well, I mean, seriously, it's, uh, you know, this is cool stuff. When we were kids, this was only dreamt about. And now it exists. It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty cool. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this wrap one up. It up. Yeah, brother. All right, uh, so we will uh, thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast and Get Appler G E T A P P L R dot com. Uh, he converts this show to AAC for us and for you. Cashfly at Cashfly C H <laughs> Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace, as we said, includes BB Edit from Barebone Software, Text Expander and PDF Pen from Smile, Gazelle at gazelle.com, Crash Plan at crashplan.com slash MGG. The deal there changes, but check it out. Uh, and I think it's coming back to be something cool. And Squarespace, of course, at squarespace.com slash MGG5 because it's the fifth month of the year. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, do you have any lasting advice to share with our friends out there? I would say don't not get caught. Made up.